Well, if you've been with us through this Advent season, you know that we've been looking at, actually, what we called the season was the Angels of Christmas. Why do we call it the Angels of Christmas? Well, we kind of were looking through these familiar passages about the birth of Christ, but we were looking at them through the different messages that the angels brought each time, right? We had seen uh, in our series, first off, that the angels had brought hope and peace and joy and love, just like the four candles that Aaron reminded us of, that when the angel came, Gabriel came to Zechariah, he brought a message of hope because he had shown that, look, now is the time. The promises of the Old Testament were going to be fulfilled, beginning with John the Baptist fulfilling Malachi's promise that John would return. John the Baptist would be this Elijah who was to come. Uh, He's fulfilling a promise, making way, preparing the time the Messiah would come. The hope would no longer just be distant, but a realized hope. We saw in, in, in Mary that as the angel Gabriel came to her, that she found peace as the angel said, look, you're going to have a son. And in the massively confusing calling that that was as a virgin, as this young woman, she could respond and surrender and find that peace, the peace that Aaron spoke of, this peace that passes all understanding, this peace that's incomprehensible. We saw in the angel coming to Joseph in a dream saying, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is from God. Here's what you're to do. There was this incredible turnaround for Joseph. And now when you see God's plan and God's motives and God's intentions and what God is doing, we can respond with joy. Finally, we saw the angels come last week when you saw them come to the shepherds. This incredible joy unto you, a Savior is born. Here's the love of God expressed. You, the shepherds, you, the outcasts, you, the ones who think you're forgotten. Oh, no, you're not forgotten. The Messiah has come, and you guys get to be the first ones to hear about it and the first ones to go tell the good news. It's been kind of a fun series. It's been fun to look at it through the angel's perspective. It's been fun to look about it through these words. But as we've seen over and over again, this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1 reminds us that even the angels long to look into things about the gospel. Verse 12, it was revealed to the prophets when they spoke of these things that have now been told to you uh, by those who first preached the good news or the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. The angels of heaven, these majestic beings, these, these created servants of God in all their glory and splendor, what are they talking about? What's on their mind? It's probably not the ravens. <laughs> what, what do they care about? It's not, it's not your, you know, your stats on your uh, fantasy football. No, no, no. What do they care about? They're all about the sun. They're longing to look into this good news about Jesus. Because when it says the gospel, they looked at these things. What do we mean by the gospel? Well, if you've been around church a while, you should know what the when we mean gospel, we mean good news. What is this gospel? Well, one is Jesus paid the penalty when he died on the cross. He paid a penalty for your sins. That is absolutely part of the gospel. You couldn't save yourself. God has rescued us. Jesus has given us eternal life. That's part of the gospel. Aaron mentioned it before as well. As we talk about this hope in Christ, it is for eternity. There is a rescue, a redemption. There is a forever place. The gospel involves eternal life. 
But sometimes we as Western American Christians emphasize, oh, he's forgiven me. Oh, he saved me. Oh, he's given me eternal life. And sometimes we miss the fact that the gospel very much is not just what Jesus gives us, but it's Jesus. He is the good news. He is the fact that God has come to be with us. He is the one who's made us in his image that he's recreating our hearts. He has given us this born-again status. It is Jesus that all of the universe is held together by him and for him. It is about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews talks a lot about this. He was probably writing to those who had initially kind of responded to Jesus, but perhaps we're beginning to go back to a former belief in Judaism, a former way of just going through the rituals and through the motions. He was writing a letter that was trying to say, look guys, no, 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 no. The, the, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament laws and regulations, the temple worship, these are all important because they point to Jesus. Let's hear his words in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Do you hear what it's declaring? Through whom he made the universe? There's a line by an old Michael Card song that just says, oh, it's a, a mystery fantastic and wild that a mother was made by her own child. Wait, what? Well, absolutely. I mean, Mary, sure, she's Jesus' she's Jesus's mom, absolutely. In all those ways. And yet somehow at the beginning, before time even began, the author of life, the one who holds the universe together, the one by whom, through whom all things were made by God, Jesus, the Logos, the Word of God, he put her together. I don't understand it. Don't, I, I don't ask me to explain it. But I can tell you this. The prophets received God's Word. But Jesus, the good news, is the Word of God the Logos of God. Now, if you were coming from this Jewish mindset that, that, that the writers are writing to, that the writer of Hebrews is, is addressing, uh, they, I mean, obviously revered the prophets and they revered how the angels spoke and how the angels of God were these messengers that brought the law and the covenants to the people of God. They revered that. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, we see one of those windows, right? It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in these flames of fire from within this bush. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. This was not the only appearance that God would make from an angel to Moses, and God would ultimately give the laws and the covenant and the agreements about revealing who God is and his name and his nature and his expectations to us. He did that all through these angels. So obviously in this mindset, it's like, yes, we need to revere these messengers of God, these intermediaries of the covenant. But here the writer of Hebrews wants you to see that although that's what God did in the past, in all kinds of ways, now he has spoken through his son. He's the heir of all things. It's all his. He's the one through whom he made the universe. Most of, of the of the Biblical scholars would say that even John's gospel sort of reflects some of this early understanding where the believers and followers of Jesus were coming to understand that Jesus was, was somehow 
more than just, of course, a man, more than just a savior, but he was this deity. He was God incarnate. In John's gospel, it reflects this idea when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus this Logos, this first emanation, this only begotten of the Father, is this one who has been with the Lord always. He didn't start at conception. He didn't start in the manger. He did not begin right here. He's always been. And the universe was made by him. There is nothing in existence that exists without Jesus. That's why when we sing those songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, appropriate songs today. We've had this theme about the angels. But notice even in that song, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled the incarnate deity. This deity, this God, and now has become flesh. That's what John goes on to say in verse 14. The Word, the Logos, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I can't remember if I told you this story. I, I really can't, because it just sometimes my memory goes, and I teach at a bunch of different places. But this year, in one of my final exams, one of my students uh, wrote her final paper, and she mentioned in there, uh, she was trying to write this defense of, a, a, of God's existence, and she comes from a Christian background, and she wrote in there that, and God made Jesus, blah, 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 blah. And it really didn't affect her argument. I didn't take off any points there. But I just wrote to her because she had told us in class that she came from a Greek background. And in her home, they actually speak Greek. So I went to my little um, BibleGateway.com and Googled the Greek text and went ahead and pulled out. Um, just to correct you on one quick little side point, at the very bottom of her comments, I said, In tes arches, alogos ein. In the beginning was the word, and the word was... And I just put it in Greek for her. And I said, Did you see it? She said, No. And she read it, and she was like, She got this big smile. Yeah, Jesus has always been. He is not just this baby. He is, well, let's listen to Hebrews, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Wait, what? I mean, what? wait, what? <laughs> You want to see the glory of God? You want to see God's presence in your life? You want to know Him intimately and closely? Have you picked up the Gospels lately? <laughs> Have you been reading about Jesus lately? Have you been praying and saying, Lord, show me more of your Son? Because when I see Jesus, boy, I'm seeing the Father. When I see how Jesus interacts with people, I'm seeing how God interacts with us. I want to see more of the radiance and glory of God. I want to see more of Jesus. This Jesus who sustains all things by his powerful word? i got to be honest. It is not up to me to save democracy, no matter what anybody's arguing in the ball. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. Whether they are nations, whether they are economies, whether it's the force that holds the electrons and the neutrons and they're all hanging in there together, it's his word. It's his word. 
It's not just the order of things. It's the way he ordered things. Are you amazed at Jesus this morning? After he provided purification of sins, we talked about this. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty. He rose from the dead and sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. So yes, we've been talking about the angel's perspective. We've been talking about the message that they bring. But it's never been about the angels and it never will be. It's always been about the Son. As it says in verse 4, So he, Jesus, became much superior, much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is, in, is superior to theirs. The messengers are just the messengers. But the Son is the Son. So how is Jesus superior? Well, because He's the Son of God. As it says in Hebrews 1, are not all of the angels just ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? Jesus is this unique Son of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews does a masterful job then of weaving together some Old Testament texts to show as evidence that this is some, something that's confusing or surprising maybe to that Jewish mindset, but he's saying it shouldn't have been. This has been always God's message from the beginning. This is what God's been talking to us about. This unique sonship idea has, is so important because it could be confusing in their mindset. Why is it unique? Why is it so important? Well, we need to realize that this term, son of God, sons of God, well, it could kind of be implied in different contexts, even in that Jewish tradition. It has some other places where it was attributed. We see it all the way back in the book of Genesis. Look at this one. It's a confusing passage, and scholars debate it, and even Jewish scholars of the day debate it, when it says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married at any of them they chose. Okay, <clears throat> who are these sons of God? Some believe it referred to angels, and there's a big tradition that these are the angels, and this resulted in this race of Nephilim, and I, there's a whole big group that thinks this and believes this, and may I, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of more detail there, and it could be. Some believe that this is sort of the line of Seth. Remember there was Adam and Eve, and they had sons, right? Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel, and then they had another son, Seth, and they, oh, well, this is Seth's line. They're called the sons of... I, once again, not real sure, not a lot of evidence there. We don't really know. But you've got this term, sons of God. And boy, we as humans love to expand. We love to, to well, if God's not clear about it, well, maybe he needs my help. So I'll go ahead and, uh, go ahead and explain about some. So we have different theories. We have different ideas. But we do, in God's word, have the phrase. And so it's there. Psalm 82, though, is probably the most um, one that we have to look at because it, in it, it has some very interesting acknowledgments in this psalm about God and about God's greatness and about his glory. It has some interesting phrases. And in verse 1, it says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgments among the gods. Like, what other gods? Like, Zeus and Apollo, are they sitting up there? Uh, it's like, is it Ra, the, you know, from the Egyptian guy? I mean, who else is up in the... Uh, who is he talking about? 
Probably a reference to the angelic beings, probably something there. But later it says this, it says, I said to you, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Jesus, in fact, quotes this passage when he's talking to people that are like very upset that he keeps using this phrase about himself and claiming to be the Son of God, and they're upset at him, and Jesus says, well, doesn't the scripture say you are all sons of God? If that's what God says about those to whom the word of God came, why are you upset at me, Jesus, for claiming I am God's son? And I'm like, oh yeah, good point. So this idea of sons of God kind of is in there. But what is Jesus talking about when it refers to him? This idea that we were talking about, this deity holding the universe together. What is this evidence that Jesus has a unique divine status? Well, while we might say this was surprising and even surprises us in our modern scientific worldly mindset, even the surprise the Jewish people in their monolithic, um, monotheistic view of, of God, it's both, monolith and monolith, but, but monotheistic view of God, um, I don't want to do my malaprophetisms everywhere, but my monotheistic view of God, that this might have surprised them, Jesus' divine status, it's consistent in the Old Testament revelation about who God is. It's been all the way through that this triune God has always been there. Look, Hebrews 1 is going to quote these passages from the Old Testament to help us understand that this has always been God's plan. Look in verse 5. It says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, Today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. You see, he's referring to a couple Old Testament passages. First comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And it says this, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. In this psalm of David, in this psalm that expresses the kingship and this like king and, and that, that would be in Israel, it goes on to kind of more implicate, no, not just a kingly figure, not just a ruler of an earthly kingdom, but this son of God. Today I've become your father. God speaks the same when he speaks to King David and promises about his eternal line, that, it, that, that his kingdom would never end, that he would place a son upon the throne. And God says, and I will be his father and he will be my son. He's not talking anymore about Solomon because Solomon died. His reign came to an end. And in fact, the lineage of David in an earthly kingdom came to an end when that kingdom came to an end. But God was speaking about his own son who would be in the line of David, who would be in the line of kings, but who would be unique, the unique son of God. Not convinced? Well, Hebrews didn't, the writer of Hebrews didn't think he would be. So he goes on in verse 6 says, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all of the angels worship him. An interesting passage he's referring to. Where does this come from? It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It comes from Moses' words at the end, where Moses, speaking on God's behalf, is proclaiming this is the judgments God would bring. This is the situation God would bring. And in this really quite brilliant exegetical understanding of the text. The writer of Hebrews says, and God speaking says, let God's angels worship who? Him. So this is not a human saying, hey, by the way, angels, make sure you're worshiping God. This is God saying to the angels, 
you worship him my son this is the what the writer of hebrews is trying to show and in speaking about the angels of course he goes on to say the angels were just ministering servants they are spirits they are servants flames of fire in psalm 104 going on he says this in verse 8 but about the son he says this that your throne O god will last forever and ever a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom again psalm 45 a coronation song a song about the king and his wedding day and this great coronation of the king but then it says this because you've loved righteousness hated wickedness therefore god your god has set you above your companions anointing you with the oil of joy the writer of hebrews is explaining to us that don't misunderstand this passage don't think that it's saying about god that his throne will last forever and then it's only speaking about god again is your god solomon but it's saying something more it's saying no you are god son of god your throne will last forever and god your god god the father is the one who has set you above your companions that there was this double meaning going on in the text the writer of hebrews saying throughout there's been these indications these ideas about the son the last and probably the most striking for us and the most convincing to me is the one he refers to in verse 13 to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Who is God speaking to? Where is this coming from? Well, it comes from a messianic psalm. It comes from a psalm about the Messiah, Psalm 110, where God speaks and says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And then skipping down to verse 4, for the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We know this was a messianic psalm. The Jewish people saw this as a messianic psalm. Jesus saw this as a messianic psalm. And you remember at the end of the gospel stories before the crucifixion, how Jesus is tested both in Matthew and in Luke. And they're recording these certain testings. You remember they came up with Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, um, <coughs> should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? You remember that one? And Jesus pulls out the coin and says, you know, Whose picture was it? Give to Caesar what Caesar give to God's what is God's. And then the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection were like, hey Jesus, there were seven brothers and they all married the same woman and each one died and then they the next one married her and hey, it's a lever right marriage, that was cool. At the resurrection, boy, that's going to be kind of confusing, isn't it, Jesus? How do you deal with that one? See, there's no resurrection. And Jesus said, oh, oh you're an error because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And begins to explain and expose how, yeah, resurrection is absolutely part of God's plan they go on to test him but Jesus then turns the tables at the end and he says well I've got a question for you all you experts in the law whose son is the Messiah and I'm like, Psh, oh, gosh that's like a first-year rookie question I mean that is like the easiest to, of course the son of God or the Messiah is supposed to be David's son that's who the son I mean it's the line of David he's the promised one this is what we're all expecting it's going to be the son of David that's an easy one Jesus come on test us with something harder and Jesus says why then does it say and he quotes this verse Psalm 110 verse 1 the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand he says if he's the son of David why does David call him Lord 
<clears throat> I, I don't know if you're having a good time with family, grand, grandchildren, children. Anybody saying, oh, to your son or daughter, Lord. <laughs> anybody saying to grandchild, oh, master, say, I mean, anybody saying that? Or are you saying, <clears throat> Stop, <laughs> quit, <laughs> sit down, be quiet. <laughs> what? Of course we don't address, I mean, he's saying even we wouldn't do such a thing. David wouldn't address the Messiah as Lord unless he's Lord. This idea that he is king of all kings, he is Lord of all lords, that he is the one by whom and for whom the universe was made. And in fact, you're a king forever in the order of Melchizedek. was promised in Zechariah, this idea that the kingship and the priesthood would be brought together in one person. For the Jews, they were inseparably apart. Kings come from the line of Judah. They come from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. Priests come from the line of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. And they do not mix, and you can't be both. But Zechariah says, oh, no, no, no. Put a crown on the head of, of, of the priest, the high priest Joshua, which also can be translated Jesus. The high priest Joshua put the crown on his head, put the scepter in his hand. He will be priest on my throne. And in Zechariah, God predicts this idea that is captured in this psalm, that Jesus is a priesthood not in the line of Aaron, but in this priesthood that's a different line altogether, that he would be king, he would be priest, he would be son of God, he would be divine, he would be human, he would be all of those things. God's divine status in his son Jesus has been always hinted at, always shown, always predicted all the way through the Old Testament. Anybody feel like we need to study a little bit more? Anybody like, wait, wait, all this was in there? All this is in chapter 1? All this is in... Does it make you feel like you know why angels long to look into these things? Well, just as a quick ending, the divinity of Jesus is also expressed in the record of his works, the record of his earthly life, the way he lived. In Mark chapter 4, we see it, right? Jesus is asleep on the back of a boat. He, he, he's taking a nap. The storm has come quickly. The waves are up. The wind is there. It is a scary moment. And all of the disciples wake him up saying, Jesus, don't you care that we drown? We know the sea. We've, we're fishermen, but we can't handle this one. We're going down, Jesus. Aren't you upset about this? And Jesus kind of wakes up. I don't know if he was a little groggy or something, but he just says peace be still he wasn't talking to the disciples because all of a sudden the waves stopped the wind stopped all of a sudden the storm was no more it was calm and the disciples were terrified and said who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him well, we know who he is. It's the one by whom and for whom the all things exist. The one who holds it together by his powerful word. Who can say to the wind and the waves, Shh, quiet. It's okay. Right after this, they get to another side of the lake. And, and, and a demon, a, a well, man possessed by so many demons that no one could bind him, even with iron chains. This guy who says he's a legion of demons, and a legion of reference to the most powerful fighting force of its day, comes and falls down before Jesus, screaming at the top of his lungs, quaking in fear, quite honestly, shouts, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, please, just don't torture me. 
The angelic beings, the demonic hosts, the ones that everyone else can't control, the ones that we, man, creeps us out on those scary movies, right? The ones that we can't handle are afraid of Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. He is unique. He is king. Please, please, I beg you, quaking in fear, that's the one who loves you, who welcomes you. In John, Matthew 14, it says that another time when they, just after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the disciples are trying to get across the, the lake, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Peter actually got out in the storm. He got out to walk with Jesus, began to sink. Jesus just lifts him out of the water. Then he climbed in the boat and the wind died down. And those who were in the boat, this time they've got it kind of figured out. They worshiped him. Truly, you're the Son of God. Not just what kind of man is this. Well, we've got it figured out. Truly, you're the Son of God. Luke 24, as Jesus is taken up, as he shouted, oh, okay, I went the wrong way. Um, in Luke 24, it says, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. After Jesus has risen from the dead, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This morning... I sort of want to invite you into a journey. It's a journey. Yeah, you see, so many of our presents, we, we unwrap them. We, maybe it's food and we eat it. <laughs> maybe it's a little craft and we put it together. Maybe it's something that we wear and we put it on. But God has given you this gift, the gift of his son, the gift of his word. Would you join us as a church this year in unwrapping that gift. This Christmas day, would you respond by putting your faith in Jesus? Would you respond by saying, he's the son of God, I'm worshiping him. Maybe you've, you've been watching online or you've not been accepting of this truth that God has loved you, that he sent his son. Today, would you respond and put your faith in Jesus? Those of us who are believers, would you live like a believer, even in the midst of the storms, the difficulties, the son of God walks with you. God, our Emmanuel. And for us this year, I think it's my challenge that this year we would dig deep. We would dig deep in God's word. We would want to know these truths about the Son. We would want to see him glorified in our lives. We want to say, yes, Lord, we're going where you're going. And we want to know deeper about you. I think for two days, Jawan and I have been talking about this incarnation and trying to figure it out. We can't quite do it. We've, we've, we've been working on it. We haven't quite got it all figured out. But I want to know more. Come, let's pursue Jesus this year. Come, let's follow him. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and you want to accept him right now, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here with us, just right where you are, say, Jesus, I'm in. Forgive me. I want to follow you. I'm going to be at the front if you want to make that confession public, if you want to know more to answer questions. Or perhaps you're a believer. And maybe today, you're just, something's awakening in you. Maybe it's been, you've been asleep, and you just need to say, yeah, I want to know Jesus. I want to know God. Come follow him with us. Aaron's going to lead us in a couple songs, but let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for your word who is the Son of God. Thank you for Jesus.
and all that he is. Show us more. Help us follow. Thank you for finishing the work you began in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.